of the challenges that we face as milk researchers is that milk is ubiquitous in our environment. You can go to the grocery store and buy delicious dairy products, and you can buy something that seemingly replaces breast milk. And this ubiquity and this seeming replacement prevents us from really stepping back, I think, and recognizing how exquisite of a biological fluid mother's milk actually is. It has been shaped by hundreds of millions of years of natural selection to provide a plethora of critical components to the developing neonate. So it initially is thought to have evolved before mammals um, in, in, in deep ancestors to provide hydration and immunofactors across soft-shelled permeable eggs. But across time, it has become diversified such that it is the defining characteristic of our mammalian class. All mammals make milk, and that milk has been shaped to be quite, quite complex. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of bioactive constituents in mother's milk. These include the fats and the proteins that fuel and build our tissue, vitamins, minerals, hormones, which are really important metabolic and uh, biopsychological signals, immunofactors, and for the developing neonate, it is the source of safe and clean water for hydration. So we need to start thinking about milk, not just as the food that you can buy in the store, but food and medicine and signal interacting in complex dynamic ways that we still do not systematically understand. So here is a keyword search in PubMed that I did just over a year ago. And what you can see is that there is a substantially greater amount of research effort that has been directed toward understanding pregnancy, but not the first substance that the neonate has evolved to consume. And that should make you angry, okay? Because this is a period when you have really uh, important contingent social interaction between caregivers and infants. It's where they are first being exposed to any number of, of uh, environmental complexities. And the milk that they get from their mother is what is going to shape their response to that environment. And yet, we don't know about it. And we need to. The biggest health challenges facing the globe today are things that are either prevented, ameliorated, or treated by constituents in mother's milk. So right now, for the first time in human history, our health is more threatened by being overweight than underweight at a, at a global level. And breast milk can reduce the probability of developing obesity. Five million infants and children get diarrheal disease each year, and 1.5 million of them will die. And there are constituents in mother's milk that help protect them and treat them from these rotaviruses. And we are increasingly seeing preterm births. And it's becoming quite clear that breast milk is going to provide the most effective nourishment and treatment for these particularly vulnerable uh, premature neonates. That's the big picture. I investigate mother's milk primarily through an evolutionary lens. And I do it by studying the rhesus macaque, which is a bit more separated from us, but makes a really phenomenally wonderful model for investigating the behavioral biology of mother's milk in the absence of a lot of the cultural considerations that are so critically important in human <coughs> breastfeeding. Because we still don't know the basic mammalian behavioral biology of milk for any species. 
I work with Reese's macaques that live at the California National Primate Research Center in these large outdoor corrals in which they're in social groups very similar to what you would find in the wild and engage in all of the species-typical friendly and not-so-friendly behaviors. This picture right here represents about an eighth of their total enclosure size, and we're actually able to study, this is an aerial view, we're able to study monkeys that are living in many different social groups to look at group level and between group effects. In the time since I started my research project there, we've milked nearly 300 mothers. We've uh, measured milk at multiple time points during lactation, and we've generated thousands of archived milk samples that we are now sharing with a number of collaborators to really unlock the, the diversity of constituents in mother's milk. And we can do that to try and understand how much does it vary from mother to mother. And every constituent we've looked at, we've found individual variation. Now, that variation is what natural selection is acting on when it influences the survival and fitness of that mother and her offspring. We've been able to link that variation to certain characteristics of the mother and the infant, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a few slides. And we've also been able to identify how mother's milk is contributing to outcomes in these infants. Now, as an evolutionary biologist, the fundamental question I ask is, mothers are different. They have different resources available for reproduction. How are adaptations shaped by natural selection influencing the ways that they're able to mobilize their body reserves to make milk to nourish their young. And I'm particularly interested in how mothers are doing this at the beginning of their reproductive career. So these young, first-time rhesus macaque mothers initiate reproduction at the equivalent age of a 15-year-old human. Okay? They are facing a number of trade-offs. So they have to maintain their own tissue. They're still developing and growing, so they have to allocate energy and time into that. And then if they get pregnant, all of a sudden they face trade-offs between investing in themselves and their own growth and development and investing in growing and developing their infant. Because they're still growing, they have a number of constraints in their ability to, to mobilize energy. Right? They, they aren't as big. They have fewer resources. And because infants, in order to be viable, have to attain a certain threshold condition, their infants are proportional to their own body size, relatively bigger. So they have more things to pay for, with fewer resources to do it, to rear a more expensive infant. And, and we know across mammals and, and rigorously studied in many primate species that these first-time moms are at risk for a number of poor pregnancy outcomes, right? So they're at risk of miscarriage and premature delivery. They are more likely to have infant death. Um, they're characterized as, you know, they're less experienced, so their behavioral care is less experienced. And from an evolutionary perspective, their, their infants are generally characterized as, as higher probability of low quality relative to the infants of a prime age reproductive mother. So what does this mean for their milk? Well, in terms of the total composition of fat, proteins, and sugar, not much. Right? They're able to make the same amount of fat and protein and sugar in terms of percent concentration as, as prime or aged mothers. However, they cannot make as much. So if you look at their lactation curves at peak, um, across lactation from early peak to what we would consider weaning, but put an asterisk next to that, these young mothers are making significantly less milk, even controlling for their smaller, smaller body size at early lactation during a critical period of neurodevelopment and behavior. They almost catch up at peak lactation, which is a, a really um, important period of peak velocity of infant growth. So it seems that they're able to kick up milk production during this important critical window. But they can't sustain it. 
and their milk production significantly declines in the months between peak lactation and what we would characterize as weaning. Now, I call it weaning because they're uh, preventing infant access to the nipple to get milk. Infants are starting to eat solid foods. However, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that these, this blue line right here, these are prime-age females. They are robust. And this time point right here at weaning is the initiation of the breeding season for the next, next breeding year. So this shows you that the lactation curves of a young female, a prime-age female, and an aged female are all very different in how and when they're able to synthesize the greatest amount of milk. And it seems that neither young nor particularly aged females are able to sustain it at the same time that they're trying to transition to the next reproductive event, but that the prime-age mothers are able to allocate to both current and future offspring simultaneously. Recently, it's um, become a, a topic of interest in the media that mothers may be making milk differently for sons and daughters. So, <laughs> wonderfully anthropomorphized baby monkeys. <laughs> so, when the developmental priorities of sons and daughters are different, and I'll talk about some of those in a few, when they may be of different costs for the mother to rear, and when they may have different reproductive value from the mother's perspective in terms of the grand offspring they will produce um, from her genes and, and return uh, fitness, we may expect to see signatures of these sex differences in the milk. And I've, I've been very, very interested in trying to unpack how mothers may be tailoring the milk that they synthesize specifically for sons and daughters. And what we found is that, indeed, they are making richer milk for sons than they are for daughters, that sons get more fat on average than do daughters. But there's a really interesting interaction with their life history because this is primarily being driven by those first-time moms. So first-time moms are making very high fat and very high protein concentrations in the milk for their sons and very, very low, very dilute milk for their firstborn daughters. Once they are prime age, these seem to largely go away. However, although the milk is more dilute for daughters, they're making absolutely more of it for them. And when you calculate out the amount of energy that is totally being produced in this window of time, it looks like it's pretty equal. So, in terms of the calories mobilized for sons and daughters, it's seemingly similar, but the recipe is slightly different, and we still don't understand entirely what that means. We also know that in rhesus monkeys that daughters' skeletons develop faster at, at earlier rates um, during infancy, and so I hypothesize that this may be supported in part by the mineral content in mother's milk. And indeed, we find that calcium's higher for daughters, but phosphorus is the same. And so the calcium-phosphorus ratio is higher for daughters, and this is a really important ratio for building bones. When you combine the fact that the ratio of calcium and phosphorus is higher for daughters with the fact that they're also making more milk for their daughters, we are interpreting this to suggest that, that they're mobilizing more calcium for their daughters and that this may be one of the physiological mechanisms that allows daughter skeletons to develop faster. This faster skeletal development is also true for chimpanzees and humans. And yet, in the literature, there's nothing actually unpacking if these mineral contents in milk 
are the same for sons and daughters. Lots of people have the data, but most of the work that's being done on this is in nutrition, not through an evolutionary lens. I'm not the only person working on understanding sex differences in milk. They've been found in a number of different mammals in the last eight years. So you can see differences in the volume of milk in, in, in numerous species. So as they come up, they'll have red asterisks. And the directionality of these effects are not always consistent from species to species. So it's more just we're finding them, still trying to understand what they mean. There's differences in fat, in minerals, in protein, and in hormones. We are, we are at the very beginning of this area of research. We do not know what this means, but it, it suggests that we need to systematically study it so that we can do better donor matching of milks in NICUs when you have uh, premature births and you're using donor milk to feed them. Right now, they're not matching it based on things like parity or infant, infant sex. So that's, that's a direct area where this kind of evolutionary perspective can impact clinical practice. But then the question I always wonder is, how does the mammary gland know? How, how does it know that it's got a son or a daughter? And there was a really, really elegant study that was done um, with rodents, as, as most rodent work gives you such incredible experimental manipulation. And what they did is they moved around um, pups right after they were born, and they created these all-female and all-male litters. And what they found systematically from this postnatal manipulation is that all daughter litters got more milk. They even made litters that were many daughters or just a few daughters or many sons or just a few sons and systematically regardless of how many pups daughter uh, how many pups the bankfuls had to rear they increased their milk production for the daughters but this is a postnatal interaction right we can think about how this this how we breastfeed our infants and that that patterning and that structure can vary based on on cultural preferences for sons or daughters or signals from sons or daughters that may be different but the functional development of the mammary gland actually occurs during pregnancy. It's before those contingent interactions. So with some collaborators in dairy science at Kansas State University, we decided to try and investigate how prenatal effects, how the fetus might be influencing the mammary gland. Dairy cows are a fantastic model for asking lactation biology questions because the calves are pulled at birth. Right? So any signal of sex bias is going to be exclusively because of a fetal signal. Moreover, because there's standardized milking techniques across many, many farms, we know that, that it's you know, impervious to any kind of experimental, unwitting bias. <laughs> and what we found is that systematically across all parodies, cows produce more milk after gestating a daughter. And this effect is strongest, again, on the first parity. Right? So we, again, are seeing these interesting interactions between where a female's at in her reproductive career and, and what the sex of her infant is. But mother's milk doesn't just feed the infant. The third most common constituent in human breast milk are human milk oligosaccharides. And placental mammals don't actually have the enzymes to break these down, which means that they pass intact from the infant's stomach into their intestinal tract, where they are doing impressive ecosystem building to shape the bacteria that are colonizing that infant's gut. So the bacteria that we carry around in us are instrumental in our immune function and in the bioconversion of the nutrients we eat. They make a lot of our minerals available and, and a number of other things. They also are competitive inhibitors of pathogenic bacteria. And what we're finding 
is that mothers, human mothers especially, are making very particular sugars, not to feed their infant, but to feed their infant's bacteria. So mothers aren't just eating for two. They're eating for two to two, two times the 200 trillion, okay? <laughs> their bacteria and their baby's bacteria. And this is where things get really cool, because when you look at breast milk in humans versus other primates, it pretty much looks the same. We're pretty typical primates in the amount of fats and proteins. We can have some extra fatty acids in our milk because we can get it into our diets through cultural and social interactions. But in terms of what our bodies, our mammary glands are making, we're, we're a pretty typical primate, except for these oligosaccharides, these instrumental sugars for, for colonizing bacteria. And not only that, but here you can see humans, we're making a lot more big ones. Now, there, last check, there are 500 different oligosaccharides. We don't know all of their functions, and we don't know um, exactly what predicts how they vary among mothers. And lastly, in closing, mother's milk doesn't just feed the infant and the commensal gut bacteria. The bacteria are present in milk. So breast milk represents a pathway by which mothers are translocating their own gut bacteria into the mammary gland, and then it's being ingested and recolonizing the infant's gut. We do not know how this mechanism works, and we don't know how it's picking the bacteria it uses. So it might be taking the most beneficial bacteria. It might be a random sampling. It might be upregulating some of the most you know, pathogenic bacteria in small quantities to entrain that infant's immune system. We don't know. And it varies from mother to mother in ways, again, we do not know. So this is part of a, you know, the mother's milk is part of a suite of, of uh, different characteristics of a lactation strategy. And this is the basic behavioral biology. But we also need to step back and think about what are the social relationships and the cultural practices that allow mothers to engage in breastfeeding, especially for humans. It's very labor intensive. We can't do it on our own. We need social networks. And in market-integrated societies, we need institutional networks to help protect the mother-infant dyad so that mothers can have all the options and that those options are the best ones. So here's what we know, or what we think we know, and here's what we need to find out. And it's a lot. So thank you to you for your attention and my funders and Carla. Thank you. Thank you.